0: Oh, the tone, the tone, the tone. tone well, well, well. Tone. You know, it's about commitment. You commit. You're not trying to be funny. It's full commitment, so everybody feels completely committed and comfortable to who they're being in that moment.
1: Hello. And welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, three close friends find themselves at the center of an outrageous plot in director David O. Russell's comedic drama, Amsterdam. Set in the 1930s, the film follows a doctor, a nurse, and a lawyer who witness a murder, become suspects themselves, and uncover one of the most secret plots in American history. In addition to Amsterdam... Russell's filmography includes the feature films Joy, I Heart Huckabee's, and Silver Linings Playbook. He is a two-time DGA Award nominee for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film, for 2010's The Fighter and 2013's American Hustle. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Russell spoke with director John Avnet about filming Amsterdam. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: Hi, David.
0: Hi, John.
2: Okay, so I'm going to do a very brief introduction since uh, you had the pleasure of watching this movie. And I'm actually going to read it because I want to actually get what I think and say it, which is basically I'm a fan of David's. So if you hear in my questions admiration and a confident belief that David is one of our more important voices in cinema today, you're hearing what I feel. (laughs) Thank you, John. And particularly at this time when movies, as David and I have talked about, in theaters are being challenged in a very meaningful way on multiple fronts, we as DGA members know that much of our strength, our prestige, and our power come from the voices of our theatrical film directors. And the fact that David and a number of them are working in putting films in theaters, and in this case, a wonderful film in a theater, is crucial so it's not just fun, it's important for us. And in this group of directors, who I admire so much, I think David very comfortably sits in the pantheon. So I hope tonight to give you a window into his process, and I hope that you love the film, liked it or didn't, you'll see how he thought about doing it. And one of the few wisdoms that, <laughs> bits of wisdom that have stuck in my many years on this planet now uh, is that a film reviews the reviewer. So in that sense, I always feel humbled when I watch them and when we talk about them. So
0: what does that mean? It
2: means that we all come with a bias and we all watch from our own point of view. And depending on what that point of view, or as I said to you once, that German word umwelt point of view, but with the feeling of the viewer, it can distort what you see. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have, I've seen a movie. And then the second time I see it, I went, Oh, I missed that. And I liked it much better. And I'm not talking about whether it holds up in time. So David, as you know, has directed many of my favorite movies from Silver Linings and Flirting with Disaster, The Fighter, a small movie about the Abscam scandal, which I adored. And uh, one of these days, David, you're going to get a really good cast in your movies. (laughs) So let's start with why this movie and how this came to you.
0: Thank you again for being here, John. Thank you all for being here. And I, I would say the Christian Bale, I have the privilege of writing for my actors and of knowing all the actors in this film over a number of years, some of them for 17 years or more. Uh, this is my fourth time with Mr. De Niro, my third time with Christian. And me and Christian started to collaborate on creating a character that we would love, who was as ever an outsider, someone struggling, walking uphill, but who nevertheless had a spring in their step uh, Because otherwise they'd be crushed, um, which is something that I relate to personally a lot, Uh, and so does Christian. So we were creating this Dr. Burt Berenson based on someone, an outsider who uh, was trying to belong and find his way back, and uh, his best friend and his other best friend. And once we found these three characters, and I was building this with Margot Robbie as well for three years, we I looked at this period of history. I always knew I wanted to tell a story that felt like in another era that was a little bit epic where you had three friends who didn't see each other for a long time and then saw each other again. And that that you would love them and what they had been through. And it would it would be about things that I had never known before and it would back into something huge, uh, as some of my favorite movies did, that I didn't know and nobody we knew knew. So we had this history we were sitting on, John, and we said, this is what we're going to back into in the third act once we fall in love with these people, which was our intention is to love the characters uh and i would say i could that's that's, that's a good answer
2: yeah. well i don't think anybody here wants you to censor yourself so
0: <clears throat> do all the answers at once yeah.
2: okay uh, well why not i would have to say much less and be very happy amsterdam amsterdam the title uh, and wasn't new amsterdam a reference to something in our country it, isn't new amsterdam like a little bit of new york is that yes, anything? Yes, okay. yes. Yes. So, what were you thinking? You know, obviously, oh, well, I, it takes it, it, place in Amsterdam, and so on and so forth. What was what was the root just, of that? I just
0: we, we, me, and Christian were looking at tons of research together and uh, creating somebody who didn't really understand what love was, which statistically is half the population in their domestic homes are still trying to figure it out. So I relate, and I know many people who relate. And the lesson of is love based on choice or need? Is it was something we really loved that autopsy becoming kind of a double autopsy, if as it were, um, about the death of their commander who had brought them together, but also about what is love in the eyes of Zoe Saldana and Christian, trying to help Christian understand that. Um, And the question was Amsterdam. So uh, Amsterdam... After the war, we saw all these people in pictures, John, at the Roseland Ballroom. And you'd see two people dancing together, or two people who were friends, and they didn't look like each other. And you'd say, well, I never heard their story. So we decided we were going to tell their story. And we did research, and we saw people who, after the war, had the happiest times of their lives in Paris, but also in Amsterdam. And they could open a club, and they could help other veterans passing through town. And there was a tradition of women from the upper classes uh, who had gone over to help. And uh, Jay Cassidy, our editor, his grandfather uh, married uh, one of those women. Uh, I know his grandfather married a French woman who was working for J.P. Morgan's daughter in a hospital and uh, in a town in France. And so Jay Cassidy, as is my fourth movie with Jay, had a very personal connection to this story. Um, so Amsterdam was meant a state of mind. It was a state where you had been free. Harold Woodman, probably more free than he's ever been, as John David Washington says, the mighty John David Washington, is able to just live and be a person and walk around and and love and live life as they wish to. And after you've had death, as Christian Bale says, his grandmother went through the blitz. She never appreciated life as much as she was right next to death. So you have these people meet in blood and death that no one can explain. They decide to make their own life, and it's in an Amsterdam, and that's what Amsterdam represents. And everybody should have an Amsterdam for when you're sad or when things are looking bad, like sometimes in history, sometimes maybe now. Uh, you you have to think of what is worth living and fighting for, and and and, and uh, what's worth loving, living and fighting for.
2: So let let me jump to something because when you talk about that autopsy scene, one of the things that I just love way you do it and it's so singular i mean only person who comes close is adam mckay and and, and his style and your style are not the same but he does mix tones beautifully i looked at that autopsy scene as both a an exposition about a failed marriage and a very kind of uh, quasi-erotic getting to know you scene between zoe and uh, and christian and the fact that in an expository situation early on in the movie you could develop this kind of visceral experience. I, I went, "Whoa, that is
0: pretty cool." How'd you do that? I think from spending six years with Christian, you saturate in the heart. No, no, and no, soul. no, no, no. Uh-huh? I'm talking very specifically about this scene. About this
2: scene. Okay, okay, How did okay.
0: You pull that. Okay. Off? Well, uh, okay. Well, you know that Harold Woodman has someone he wants him to meet, Irma Saint Clair. So I like that his best friend is looking out for him. I like that every time he talks to Harold, they're trying to figure out what's going on. When he meets him for the first time in France and when he meets him at the morticians in the opening of the picture, where are we? What is this procedure? I know it's not a procedure you like. Just tell me what the procedure is. What are you doing with those flowers? Dinner date with Beatrice. Beatrice, so disappointing. Uh, So meaning his friend's already sad about his marriage. He doesn't live at home. So we've established that. All right, we've established that his friend is looking out for him. Sad that he's got a dinner date with his wife. That he doesn't even get to live in his own house because her family doesn't like him. They were hoping he would die in the war because he's half Jewish. Which is why, and this much of this is based on true history. There was one doctor, like Christian, who was welcomed into that regiment. Who that regiment was in a stockade because they said we need to know that our officers are not going to get us killed, and we need to meet somebody we can look in the eye and know this person is going to look out for us and we'll look out for them and so this was the bond of their friendship and so he's looking out for him and now we meet irma sinclair and my ambition is for every actor that i write for to see them in a way you've never seen them before and so this is for christian that's for john david and it's for zoe saldana and when she turns around to me it's very emotional when he meets her and you can feel it palpably in the room and uh i like that chris rock says why don't you go for coffee with irma sometime to, to, to john david and he says no we're friends milton i'd like uh, bert to go get to know her thanks <laughs> so um, so it's already he feels very much on the spot and self-conscious and he feels a little nervous his friend setting him up in the middle of an autopsy an which autopsy. Yeah, we, we, yeah right which his friend brought him into so so the, and it's an autopsy about how harold and he met without this commanding general who was william c hayward the father of leland hayward who produced the sound of music who was the father of Brooke Hayward, who married Dennis Hopper. So a long legacy here at the Guild. Um, I sat on this stage with, with Dennis Hopper, uh, talking about Easy Rider. So uh, Lee, uh, William C. Hayward, is in, in this movie supposes, has been poisoned. So they're finding out what's happened to the man who brought them together. At the same time, he asks her, how are you doing? What's going on with you? And uh, she says that her man has left him, has left her. And she then, he says, I'm sorry. She said, well, it happens. It happens every day. And then she goes into choice versus need, which I was taught very, very by a very young, smart actress uh, who was very wise. Uh, and uh, I had never thought of love that way, as choice versus need. And like Bert, I said, why can't it be both? And she said, well, at the end of the day, it's really the choice. That has to count. You have to choose each other every day. It can't just be because you need an identity, you need money, you need the kids, you know, you don't you don't you need a house. It has to be you choose each other. So that was we really felt that. And uh they did it in a wonder uh with Chivo. We did it in a wonder, which I realized in the editing room because we were so enchanted in the uh, I said, where's the coverage? There is no coverage. Okay. So uh Thank God it worked in one, you know. Um, Because Chivo is always, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki had also come to us and said, I would like very much to work with you, as had all the cast, which is a great blessing. So, you know, Mike Myers, uh, Andrea Riesborough, Taylor Swift, these people wanted to be in the movie, and they wanted to, they were like a band that wanted to play together. And and, uh, they were saturating in their roles for years, some of them. And they're very much ready to move around in their roles, within the pages. 14, 15 drafts of the script. Christian knew the drafts better than I did, and so did Chivo. And they would throw out a line or a scene, and I would say, that's a great idea. They would say, you wrote it. It's number five. So, and Margot Robbie related personally to the role of someone who had these two men for friends. In her real life, Margot had two best friends in her 20s on a film in Belgium, and uh, they had to be separated. They were having so much fun, John. Uh, it's because they weren't going to get the movie done, because they were staying out late and showing up late. And uh, when the, and uh, she married one, and the other one runs her company. So for Margot, this was very much familiar territory. And she very much is the woman who's in this movie. She's a force of nature. Makes you feel you can do anything. So that's her spirit there. And John David is very much who he is. He's a guarded person. He's a very grounded person. He's a very intense person. And when he when he gets vulnerable, it's like the sun came out. And and I've gone way past the autopsy scene.
2: Well, what I I, want to point out—I don't know
0: what else I can say about the autopsy.
2: What I want to point out is two things. One is, you know, you you sort of said it. You know, it's in one shot. The characters are in, uh, the actors are in character, and you, you you have this unique ability to create a visceral experience in the middle of a dialogue scene. And and then you juxtapose an autopsy with something, a getting-to-know-you scene that is not funny. It's powerful. And then if people are enjoying themselves on the dramatic level too much, you then have the coffin going out of there, and it looks like it's going to fall down, and you're back to almost your slapstick comedy roots, correct? Yeah. And to me, as an audience, and even as a filmmaker, I love the juxtaposition of these events because they're entertaining, and if there's anything that's sort of a signature to what you do in, in so many of these films that you've directed and written, uh, that it's that tonal balance. And it seems, again, as an audience, I've never worked with you on a film, that you have enormous amount of control over this. And whether that's internal or whether it's external, whether it's a part of the collaboration with the actors, with Jay, whoever, it's singular. I mean, and I, I could run down event after event, you know, in the film. I mean, like when, when Anna Taylor-Joy you know, learns about who's going to be who they're going to be trying to meet, right? Vandermeer,
0: what's his name? Vandermeer. Anna Taylor-Joy, they're going to meet General Dillenbeck.
2: Dil, yeah. Dillenbeck, right? Oh, and she's Libby, Libby Vose. Right, right. So she's she's going to meet Dillenbeck, and, and she's like a groupie. Yeah. You know, he, here's a scary woman, and she's a groupie. And it's, you know, it's, again, to me, it's both... You know, often the case, as we all know, you meet people because you'd make movies, they, they treat you differently. Here's this general who she really wants to meet, and it suggests all sorts of things about her marriage and her life, and it's just like a little brush stroke, and then you're on to the next thing. I mean, it's just delightful, you know, as an audience, you know, to, to watch this as you then go, you know, forward with your narrative. Now, getting back to narrative and not trying to compete with Aaron on this, one of the other things, he, he did an interview at the Writers Guild. He did an interview at the Writers Guild with Aaron Sorkin, who's obviously a very brilliant writer and quite a good director. And uh, the, way, the way you do exposition is also extremely unique. And it's, it's not just how you write it. It's the way you shoot it and the way you cut it. And in this film, you use a number of techniques. You have voiceover. You have dates. You have voiceover from multiple characters correct? And at one point, you have a voiceover from Christian Bale and you say, that. And you go right into, he's on camera talking to camera. So you completely break your own
0: conventions and it just plays perfectly. How do you do this, Mr. Magician? Well, he's not talking, he's, he's, he's narrating while he's staring into the lens. Yeah, but- yes, and I'll explain that because Chivo and Christian, uh, you know, we're always trying to get to know the character closer. And they made two pictures with Terrence Malick. So they had a sort of pod to do of their own and they would do their own thing. And Chivo came to the cutting room, as did Margot. Christian was in the cutting room constantly. It's a very collaborative process with Jay Cassidy, who's a tremendous editor. And uh, uh, what, what question am I answering? Oh, the tone, the tone, the tone. tone. Well, 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 you know, it's about commitment. You commit. You're not trying to be funny. You commit to who they are and to what they're doing. It's full commitment, so everybody feels completely committed and comfortable to who they're being in that moment.
2: And then expo- on exposition, you know, as part of this tonal, this tonal narrator, you're the you're the you're the voice, if you will. You know, where does that come from? I mean, you know, you're you're jump cutting within sequences, and and it's oh, you're talking about the third act. No, third no I'm talking about in 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 the beginning of the movie, you start telling the story, and you're giving us a tremendous amount of information. We don't feel overloaded by it. We're following the narrative because things start happening fairly quickly, right? And and then you're using all this narrative information. I mean, do you know what you loaded in there? you know how many characters you have in
0: this movie? Yes. Quite a few. Yes, yes, yes. How do you do well, it? Well, well, well It's it, the structure is this. Uh, Christian Bale is the heart and soul of the movie with John David Washington. He's the heart and soul of it. His doctor's office and his friendship with Harold, two fixers... You can't put a nickel together, but if you need help, you go to these two. All right? And I love people like this. And that's how I felt when I saw many movies that I loved growing up. I loved a character like that. And later someone would tell me what the movie was about because I'd fallen in love with the characters first. So it's those two guys. And Margot Valerie Vose is the spine of the story in the sense that every character you've just named – is a succession of layers of who Valerie Vose is. They do not know fully who Valerie Vose is. So first they think she's French. She's not French. Uh, that she collects the metal inside them. What's that about? She makes them make a bargain. I'm not going to give you that for free. You must give me something beautiful, something to live for in return for that. What do we have? We have a nonsense song, which is how David Bowie would write his songs and how the surrealists out of this war would write, just have fun, put words together, Mouchois, pamplemousse, handkerchief, uh, grapefruit. So they're bonded now in this song. And now she says, I mean, he said, how do I fix my eye for my wife? I know someone who will fix your eye in Amsterdam. Let's go to Amsterdam. Layer number four of Margot, Mike Myers and Michael Shannon, Paul Canterbury and Henry Norcross. There are always people in history who know what's going to happen 10 Or 20 years before it happens. And they're often in intelligence or business, and I love having characters like that. Mike Myers very much wanted to play this character. His parents are from Liverpool, they were in the RAF. He knew exactly what he wanted to look like and how he wanted to be. Uh, Michael Shannon is an extraordinary actor that I went and watched in the theater quite a bit, and now we're suddenly in their world, which is another layer. Valerie apparently has intelligence connections, uh, which is news to her two best friends. Uh, she travels in these high circles. And she will have to pay it back at some point in We'll the come a-calling again one day. We'll be happy to pay for your life here in Amsterdam. Your face, imagine having your face, these guys had terrible wounds, you know, and they didn't have medicine. So Christian's trying to invent the medicine to get through the day. They don't want to lie in a bed all day. And many veterans have responded to the film. They don't want to lie in a bed. They want to be living. So he's trying to make medicine, experimenting on himself to have the equivalent of pain medication or Xanax, to live through the day, and you can't find it. These guys say, we'll help you with the medicine, we'll help you with your face, we'll help you with your eye, and then someday will come a calling when history asks us once again to stop this madness that we cannot understand. Uh, Now, this is an interesting bargain they've just bought into, but they quickly forget it because they join the enchanting world of Valerie's Amsterdam. The art that she makes... As Christian says, she was nuts, but she was our kind of nuts. And it was maybe the happiest moment of their lives. And it would represent for them always what they were missing. Each one of them is missing a love and a home. Each one of them in the movie is still looking for it. And they haven't had it since they were together in Amsterdam. And when they come together again, they begin to feel it again. And now, Margot, they see her in another environment. She's in this big house, which they had no clue that she lived like this because she never told them. And you meet Rami Malik and Anya Taylor-Joy. Now you're in their house. And when you would do this as a band, uh, you'd be in, in Christian's voice, in Margo's voice, in Rami's voice. Suddenly, it's Mike Myers' voice. Suddenly, and it's like, oh, new instruments, new people in the band. That was exciting for everybody. Then you suddenly, when Rami and Anya first spoke up, I remember Christian turning around to me saying, holy smoke. You know, because he was so knocked out by the voices of Anya and Rami. He said, these actors are amazing. I, I'm excited by this. So it was exciting for the cast to keep playing with different characters. And now you're in another layer of Valerie's world. She lives this way rich. Her brother seems to be a nice guy who was bullied, positions himself as an outsider. But sometimes those outsiders are the ones who most want to be inside, as we are going to find out. And Anya, of course, has a crush on the general because, you know, they have a hankering for the new fad in the world at the time, which was a certain form of government that was very popular among all kinds of very uh, prominent people. And so she has a crush on that general. And all that stuff that happened in that summer of 32 was real, uh, that we, we fired on our own veterans, which cost Herbert Hoover the election. So it's littered with true history. But they're all successive worlds of Valerie's. And now Valerie's a little broken. She's got vertigo. She's not the same girl. What happened? She's not the same woman. So Margot gets to play all these layers, and now Margot gets to come back to life. Now that she's back with her friends, she gets to shake off her condition. She has to challenge her condition. And these are all taken from personal experiences I've had. I've had ailments like that where I started to wonder if it was Munchausen by proxy syndrome, if I was being controlled by my family that didn't want me to move somewhere right, when I wanted to move when I was 19. It wasn't that funny at the time. You know, you're like, what? I've become a patient. How did this happen? I'm not, you know, the breaking of a bone. You t- you collect these things as a storyteller. I had my hand broken by a doctor uh we were not falling in love with each other but uh he had to re-break my hand and i uh, i didn't get to fall in love i just blacked out and cried uh but um these are all experiences you bring christian brings we all bring and we all put into the movie into the story so th- that's the backbone of the story that's how we meet all these characters john is they're all parts of valerie's world all parts of the revealing mystery that they need to go through to get themselves out of trouble. This started with Taylor Swift, who is from on high. This woman's from on high. She's from the world of Valerie Vose, right? So this woman, oh, Val, oh Valerie told her to hire us why
2: but you don't find that out until Until you see
0: her again until you see her again and you have the narrative structure of a movie inside a movie which we also did in parts of the fighter and we also did in parts of american hustle where you suddenly say well how did we get to this place and it's a real treat as a filmmaker to have the moment suspended for a moment and go back and see how this whole thing started and to do it seamlessly so you're laughing christian bale suddenly a man in his 20s with straight posture no back brace no no one eye, no scars. And his in-laws think it's a wonderful, glorious idea to go get medals because war was a glorious adventure at that time. There hadn't been such terrible wars yet in that century for Americans. That's a long answer. All
2: right. It was a great answer.
0: Thank you, guys. I'm just
2: okay, so let me go to a specific because I know what the answer is going to be. <coughs> it, it, that you will do it, you will answer it in the way you answer So when Harold and Valerie and uh, Bert are together, this is your version of Jules and Jim, as I take it, correct? Yes. Okay. And uh, when Valerie leaves the room and and she takes out the pipe, you know, you switch to her voiceover where she says something close to, when you see someone, really see someone, you see the kid that they used to be right from the heart, they saw each other's vulnerabilities. This is not a quote, exactly. Now we switch to Harold's voiceover, (laughs) and he says without too many too many words she's looking right into your soul right so you've got two and that now you have this incredibly intimate moment i mean it's just a beautiful beautiful moment or as i like to refer to it, as a present tense moment where if you stop the movie right there all the audience would go huh we're in a movie because you're sort of in this dream state with the filmmaker in, in this point and what do you do you bring christian bale in sideways literally right <laughs> okay and You have this threesome, okay? Now, I just don't know how many people would do that making a movie where you get this wonderful moment and you just completely debunk it without losing any of the intimacy and the emotion that you created. Now, again, that's to me what I call tonal control and you're not doing this accidentally or haphazardly. This is very, very carefully chosen from what I've seen in all the movies I've watched of yours, which are most So what were you thinking, and when did you come up with this, the idea of debunking that moment that beautiful way?
0: Well, we knew that these two were going to fall in love, and so that was a very important part of the story, that they were going to fall in love, a coup de foudre, as the French say, you know, a love at first sight, which was not uncommon between nurses and and torn-up soldiers at the time. So uh, some called it a savior syndrome or a trauma bond, and very often did turn into real love. So they had real love with each other. They, and right next to death, they looked right into each other's eyes, and this is it. Let's now, the love. Way you, the them. way
2: you shot that. Yes, sir. The way you shot that, those two angles, on the shot of her and J.W. and John David and, and, and the shot with Christian. We're
0: getting to the shot with Christian. Okay, do it. So because so the, the, the movie is in Christian's point of view, which Chivo is a great filmmaker and collaborator in reminding you whose point of view we're in. So the movie is principally in Christian's point of view although it then is going to be shared, which I've done in other movies as well. But it must be done very carefully, as you've pointed out. You have to realize, where is the beating heart? You don't want to lose people. You want to keep the beating heart of the movie that feels like someone telling you a story in your ear. And so we're with Christian, and then they leave the room. And Christian, where are you going? And Chris Rock says, where are you going, young man? Where are you going? Which is what the audience is saying. Where's the movie going? Where are you going? You're leaving the room. And uh, she says, he's coming with me. He's in good hands. So we're still with Christian. We're still tied to him. He's like, what happened? We had a friendship pact. I lost an eye here. What about me? You and me made a pact. So we've, we've planted our flag with Christian, right? We, he's still saying, hey, what about me? Now we get to be enchanted and forget about him with these two, which is a wonderful thing as a, you know, as a filmmaker, too. We, 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 we ignore him. We go down a long hallway and we forget him. And now these two are lost in each other having a drink. And John David's face just gets real vulnerable and opens up. And it's just a gift of a performance to have for both these actors, to have them be able to have that kind of intimacy, immediacy together, and to give me the trust and faith that they gave us that they performed that in that moment. So this is happening. This is magic happening. And now we can have remembering. Remember me? We have our our narrator. He sticks his head out. And I always thought this would be like a bird sticking its head out, you know. It's like, well, what the hell is it, What's going on down here? do
2: we'll get into your ornithologist
0: now. No, the ornithology, that's coming. Okay. So, well, the spies always do have an avocation that finds patterns for history and nature. And that's those are true stories from the Ornithological Society. But so Bert sticks his head out, and now he joins them. What about me? Remember me? What happened to me? I thought I was your friend. Or some songwriters say, John, some famous songwriters uh, they say there's two people who are friends, and then one of them meets a partner, and that's the end of that. There goes the friendship, your pals, and all of a sudden somebody falls in love. and You're like, ah, what happened to my friend? Now oh, I got to try to make a time to see them. I got to get them to make a time to see me. So he's feeling that way, Bert, and he's watching them fall in love. This man who's struggling with love himself, who's in a mis- followed the wrong god home, which I heard a poet say once. You don't want to follow the wrong god home. What that means is you think this is swell. And then you, they always say you'll find out who the person is once you're married. You'll find when well, Then you'll find out. So you haven't met them yet. You don't meet them on the dates. You don't meet them on the dates. You meet them when you're really with them. And uh, hopefully you followed the right God home. You don't, want, you don't want to get home and say, wait a minute, what happened? And that can happen to a person and to a country and to history. You can say, well, this seems cool. Like, wait a minute, this is not cool. How did this happen? How did we end up where we are today, for example? How did they end up where they were in that time? You know, people were, were on hard times. Veterans needed things. Veterans were used in Germany and Italy as the basis of those movements. Those were veterans' movements that put Hitler and Mussolini into their power. And they thought, why not try it here? And it came very close to happening, which we didn't know. So so, so you have these friends who are falling in love against the odds. They could never do this in the United States. They have a freedom they could never have. And Christian says, I want to be part of this. and I, And I'm seeing a love here that I wish I had. Because I may have followed the wrong God home, trying to marry the rich girl. You can have the scholarship, but the daughter, no, not so much. So she says we won't show, she won't show us what she does with the medal until we trade her something, and then begins the whole thing. Yeah, so that's my answer to that.
2: All right, let's go to something a little more technical. Uh, you said to me that you prep with storyboards, and then what do you do when you come to shoot?
0: Well, we have a shot list. And we have, an, we have an entire approach to it. Chivo is very precise about where the light will come from. When you're outside, he, he picks the location based on where the sun's going through the course of the day. And uh, all the locations with Judy Becker, my designer, my uh, fifth movie with her. And uh, they collaborated on picking these amazing locations. And then he knows how to marry them to infinity with Alan Maris from FX, which they did on The Revenant, and they did on Birdman. So they know they're know they doing this thing. And in the meantime, we have our shot list, which we follow. But me and Chivo are both very intuitive. And we also will call an audible, as they say in football. We'll suddenly say, when Bert's in the office with Irma, and they're falling in love. We I've always wanted to shoot a scene where there's no dialogue, and you see two people fall in love just to a piece of music. So we played Fado, the Portuguese music of the working people of the world, and then it became a French song. And I loved it being a pas de deux between the feet of Irma walking and Christian walking. And they're both feeling something is happening. We're falling in love. And it's all going to be said with no words. We've seen them kiss and we're just going to do it as this pas de deux. And and so that 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 was an audible on the day. And so sometimes you have an audible, but you, you, you put the camera where it feels best from your shot list. And then you you sometimes change it on the day. But you must feel the intimacy and the immediacy. We're always trying to capture something that's alive. If it doesn't feel alive, it's not interesting. One of the goals is to try to do it in one, to have it all happen like a play in one. So it's an unbroken reality. So that's very often an aspiration of the film. As often as possible, how can something play in one? When they walk to the car outside De Niro's house, and when they walk, and they talk at the car, and then they come back. That, these are uninterrupted moments of reality, unbroken. So we're trying to do that quite a bit. Um, and we're trying to be very intimate. So you're shooting a lot of close-ups of, of of Bert so you can be in his mind and be in his spirit.
2: And those are center frame close-ups, almost all of them, right? Yes.
0: The, 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 and, and that this, was always the conceit. Yes, you're going to be in his, to be in his mind. At any time you could be in his face, in his mind, in what he's feeling. All the events of the third act must be in his point of view, in his, what he's feeling. He goes, well, look what's happening in this room. So it must be in in his point of view. And then all this stuff is happening around him, yeah. So,
2: like, there's a shot, if I remember correctly, of Margot in a big black hat, and there's, like, a pink background, and the lights coming in from the window, as always, with Chivo. It's just a stunning, stunning, stunning... When oh, she opens
0: the doors to her yeah, apartment. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that that great look. I love that look. J.R. Hawbaker, our costumer who was on American Hustle, and stepped into the path of Albert Wolski, the legend... And uh, he couldn't work with us due to the pandemic, because uh, we had to prep twice. So she made these costumes, which are now available on a boutique. Because many young women have seen the film and they say, "I want her attitude, I want her accessories, I want her clothes." So this and her is, money and her yeah her money yeah that's that would be good to have too. Uh, so um, so that's that's Jr. Hawbaker's magic and and that 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 cape that she made with Albert Wolski and the hat our profile you're always looking for very striking profiles that are great backlit and that you just know an epic shot when you see one and that's an epic shot we're always looking for epic shots it's almost a competition it's almost a competition between me and chivo to outdo each other
2: good work (coughs) jay cassidy
0: fourth movie with jay jay has a very personal connection to the movie because his grandfather as i said did marry a french nurse and he's part french because of that and He gave us the manual that they had in the war that his grandfather had of French to English that the cast had. And he knew this world very intimately. And he fights for the movie as passionately as anybody, as any actor, as the filmmaker, as the cinematographer, as the costumer. Everybody's passion is on the table. Jay will fight for the movie. Jay knew this was an epic story that we could cut many different ways. And he did for a year. And with taking every note from Christian Bale or Chivo or myself or Margot Robbie or Rami Malek. Rami Malek followed us around quite a bit. Everybody wants to learn filmmaking. So Rami was around quite a bit. Bradley Cooper picked it up pretty quickly. Uh, it's, it's a blessing to have these voices in the edit room and for Jay to be such a collaborative, passionate filmmaker uh, who really has his heart and soul in the film. And he'll fight you sometimes about the film and will sometimes switch positions in an argument. I'll say, Jay, but I'm taking your point of view now. And he will say, but that's no longer my point of view. I now have, I now have your point of view. So, but that's a healthy creative debate. You want that. I think, it's only, I think directors are, 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 are depriving themselves of a great opportunity if they don't welcome that debate into their, into their cutting room. Uh, I think it, it, the film can really, you make the film three times. You make it when you write it. You make it when you shoot it and you make it when you cut it. And there, And you're remaking the film every time. And uh, this film came together, and you can feel when it starts to take on a life of its own, because the film starts telling you what it wants, and it will reject things. So you'll try to put a scene or a line in, and the film will reject it. Christian Bale doing his beautiful voiceover, as did Margot and John David, repeatedly, uh, as Ray Liana did in Goodfellas, as the girl did in... Uh, the Terry Malik movie, um, Heaven, Days Heaven, Days Heaven, Days of Heaven, Days of Heaven. Thank you. So th- these these voiceovers are done multiple times by the actors because they're like an instrument on the movie. So the actors are the, doing these lines. We do it right in the cutting room, repeatedly, 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 writing it and redoing it. And so this is music added to the movie, such that eventually the movie finds the composer. The cut of the movie is watched by Daniel Pemberton, who I met because I did an event for Aaron Sorkin, and we're being the Ricardos. And he's a young British composer who said, I love the film. I respond to it emotionally. I would like to write the score, and I would like to present it to you this week for free. It's an idea I've never tried. It's all woodwinds. And I also would like to write a song for the end of the movie. And me, Christian, and Jay said, okay. It's for free. No, no, no composer had offered that. And, uh, and the music came in we had no idea what to expect and we put it against the picture and the movie the movie said this is the music i have been waiting for not your temp score not the other things you were trying this music which none of us had imagined i mean we had we had certain source pieces you fall in love with a french song doucement doucement certain photo Peanuts that Bert is singing the whole time in his office to pick up spirits or on stage for the reunion. These are songs that we loved and the actors learned to sing in French and in English. God bless them. And he did it in, in The Fighter as well. He sang with Melissa Leo. They sang a Bee Gees song. Yeah. And you, you, they learn it and they memorize it. And you say to the producers, we're going to sing a song here. And they say, but we have no time for this in the movie and it makes no sense. And you say, but, you say, but it does make sense. It's, this, it's the two characters' love song together. And that's what it is in this picture. And, uh, well, that
2: nonsense song makes sense.
0: Exactly. That's their bond. That's their love. That's everything right there.
2: So I'm being told that we have to wrap it up. So are there any words you would like to say to this audience?
0: Just that I'm grateful to uh, Doug Torres and the entire AD team. I'm, I'm grateful to, to the UPM team. Everybody put all their heart into the movie and made an atmosphere that was beautiful and happy and joyous for every actor. Every actor here said they would, they would, they felt that they could do anything for me. And that is the greatest blessing or gift a director can have uh, when actors want to be in a movie and they want to give you everything they've got. And so I'm grateful to everybody here uh, and, and to everybody who's in the picture and to you, John, for doing that, for you guys for coming out. Thank you.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.